Let me read to you our passage for the day. It is the very first account of the first Pentecost Sunday. It comes to us from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of, each of us, in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, to Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would bless each one of us. It is only by your spirit that anything of true and lasting profit, can ha profit for us can happen in this time together, that your spirit would come and use these words and the uh, sound waves and our eardrums and our hearts and our minds and everything that you would see your spirit working in each person here to give them what they need as a word from you that they could understand in their own language today, a word of life and health and salvation and love. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I'll take a brief moment of pastoral privilege, and that is that I was ordained 15 years ago today on Pentecost Sunday in 2007 in John Jay High School's uh, cafeteria, I believe, over in Park Slope, uh, as I became an assistant pastor for the first time, uh, or a pastor for the first time. And I was looking back, as one does sometimes, and just see what, what you've been through, you know, on an anniversary, what you've kind of done. And I've 
was particularly wondering, what is it that has come out of my mouth the most often the last 15 years? Like, what are the things that I've said the most in my sermon manuscripts, the sounds that you've heard, the kinds of words, the kind of vocabulary, the kind of message that marks sort of Jameson's main themes? You know, I would hope, of course, they're submitted to the scriptures and to the great tradition of the church, which there's a lot of room to move around in. I would hope that they would be uh, faithful and expressive of that, but also that they would apply to us in our day and time, that we would hear the word apply to us in our own language and our own time. And whether or not I've been able to do any of that and anything that has happened, of course, is by the grace and power of God. I did notice two themes that jumped out on pretty much every every manuscript, some of them every time, at least every other week. Sometimes if I went two weeks without mentioning it, it was a miracle. One is a little more theological, and it is basically this, this idea that the church, and by the church I do mean the visible, I mean the invisible global church of people that follow Jesus, but specifically the way that that is expressed in local, messy, real-life congregations around this neighborhood and this city and this planet, in place and place after us, that in that those congregations and those churches, this is one of the primary ways that God is still working in the world. And what he's doing primarily through those churches is bringing a unity, a unity that the world can't give. And last week, if you missed the sermon last week, you can go back and listen to it if, if you're interested in this theme. Jesus, in his final prayer, before he was crucified at his last supper with his meal, his final thing he says to his father that he wants his disciples to hear him praying is that his church would be one, that they would be unified, and that precisely in their oneness and unification with God and through Jesus and with one another, that that's how the whole world would know that Jesus truly was God's son. And so I've talked a lot about unity in the church. And the other thing that I've talked about the most, I think, is something to do with, anything to do with the internet. I've basically spent the last 10 years since I've been the pastor of this church warning you about the downsides of social media and smartphones and technology and, of course, always affirming the good things that it does, but warning us that we are living through a strange epic, you know, and you have to go back a little ways to see the uh, amount of change that happened rapidly and the nation states uh, going to war and all the things that happened around the printing press. And we're like lived through another one of those kind of communication that changes the way that information gets out and the people interact and our entire society and that there's some dangers to this. So I'm going to remind you, this is a quote I actually read in 2016, okay? So think about 2016. Uh, we're, we're just a little ways into the sort of uh, uh, ubiquity of smartphones and computers in everyone's pocket and all these things going. So this is, this is I call this version one of the canary in the coal mine. So early 2016, very early, cultural commentators, artists, and others are starting to be like, well, we really dove straight in the deep end headfirst on this thing, didn't we? Have we thought about what this might be doing to our relationships or our communities? And so this is, again, this is version one. This is old news. Andrew Sullivan was writing in New York Magazine in 2016. I love the title of this phone. Here's or the phone, the title of this article. It's called this, and there's quotes. Put down your phone, a.k.a. I used to be a human being, a.k.a. My distraction sickness and yours, Right? And you can, you can already tell where this is going. This is version one. We're all used to it now. You probably have a little pocket argument in your back pocket. But I'll just quote a few pieces of it. He says, we all understand the joys of our always wired world, the connections, the validations, the laughs, the entertainment, the information. I don't want to deny those. But maybe we're just beginning to get our minds around the costs, if we're even to prepare that there are costs. And he goes on to talk about 
he says things like this. Of course, it says that these things will bring us together. But if you're having dinner with your family and everyone's looking at their phones, you are not actually together, right? You're alone near one another. If your attention is somewhere else, if you're not actually watching your kid's sporting game, but instead checking the notifications on your phone, your child knows you're not present. And here's what he says. The problem is, is that being with someone experientially embodied, face-to-face, present, that is one of our deepest social skills that has been honed through the eons. It's what makes us distinctively human, and this is a quote, by rapidly substituting virtual reality for reality, we are diminishing the scope of this interaction, even as we multiply the number of people with whom we interact. And he goes on to explain some of this. He actually mentions the church at the end, and he says, if churches would come to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is perhaps not hedonism, but distraction. Maybe they might begin to appeal to a new frazzled digital, digital generation. He's saying, hey, everyone's actual problem isn't just hedonism, it's just distraction. It's being alone together. In a major megalopolis, global capital of the world, walking past one another, unless they're bumping into each other because they're staring down like eye zombies at their iPhones, right? We're alone together. Now, you've heard this argument somewhere if you've been around for half a minute. It gets even worse if you fast forward to a month ago and just think of everything that's happened since 2016 with our politics, with our democracy, with the way that we use social media and the tools. It's the way that it's become a tool to divide and distract and harm us to the amount of animosity we have with one another, to the information we get about whether or not COVID is real and all this stuff. And uh, another cultural commentator, Jonathan Haidt, wrote in The Atlantic, I'm sure many of you saw this just in April. His title, equally interesting, is Why the Past Year, 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. I'm gonna read this couple paragraphs at length and then we'll dive in, okay? This is version two. And version one is just like, yeah, we're really distracted, but you know, it is really convenient. This is version two where you look around and you find yourself in the rubble. What would it have been like to live in Babel? He's talking about the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. What would it have been like to live in Babel in the days after its destruction? See, in the book of Genesis, we are told that the descendants of Noah built a great city in the land of Shinar. They built a tower, quote, with its top in the heavens to, quote, make a name for themselves. God was offended by the hubris of humanity and said, look, they are one people. They have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. And so let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So God, in order to prevent humankind in in their rebellion against him, construct a permanent society based on rejection of God and shalom and peace, went and confused their language so they could no longer work together in the same way on that project, right? Then you get the history of nations. This is where nations began. All the nation states, all the boundaries and the borders and the flags and the history and our culture and our power and our resources and all of that is a history of what humanity has done since they've been fractured through their language and through their culture into a million pieces. Now I'm back to him again, Jonathan Haidt. 
The text does not say that God destroyed the tower, but in many popular renderings of the story, he does. So let's hold that dramatic image in our minds. People wandering amid the ruins, unable to communicate, condemned to mutual incomprehension. The story of Babel is the best metaphor I've found for what happened to America in the 2010s and for the fractured country we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. It's been clear for quite a while now that red America and blue America are becoming like two different countries claiming the same territory with two different versions of the Constitution, economics, and American history. But see, Babel is not a story about tribalism. It's a story about the fragmentation of everything. It's about the shattering of all that had seemed solid, the scattering of people who had been a community. It's a metaphor for what is happening not only between red and blue, but within the left and within the right, as well as within universities, companies, professional associations, museums, and even families, and I might add churches. Babel is a metaphor for what some forms of social media have done to nearly all of the groups and institutions most important to the country's future and to us as a people. How did this happen and what does it mean for our lives together? I feel like there's a, there's a quiet in the room because I don't even have to make, I don't have to convince you of this the way that I was trying to in 2011, 2015, 2016. Hey, there's costs to this. Now we are living it, right? And if you've been a person of faith who was here throughout the pandemic, you've seen your community disappear, scatter, fragmented, no longer gathered together in one place. You've seen former friendships, former people that you broke bread with that no longer want to speak to you anymore because of what's happening on social media feeds. It seems that we're unable to speak or even hear one another. We're unable to talk winsomely about culture or anything. We have no common tongue. We can't hear the sound of the other person's language and it's make any sense to us anymore. See, humanity, <coughs> excuse me, because of Babel, is fractured, unintelligible one to another, and afraid, and often at war. <coughs> this is the sound, and this is a religious word, but this is the sound, these are the sounds of sin. And sin is just anything that is contrary to the way God designed it, the purpose he designed for it. And so when we go awry, when we go astray, when we leave the path, we see the fruits of that in the world and the fruits of turning away from the fellowship and the unity, the bond of love that is in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and in his people to build our own name, to make a name for ourselves will lead to these sounds, unintelligible, guttural, angry noises emitting from our mouths or from our feeds with the little noises that they make with the shh, shh. Everything is foreign tongues. The good news. The good news is that it's the same God who made everything to be perfectly united in harmony and love and self-sacrifice and self-giving and receiving for flourishing and for abundance. The same God who made all these things was determined that we wouldn't make a permanent society based on hatred of God and hatred of uh, the creation and pride and making a name for ourselves and building monuments to ourselves, but instead confused it as a grace, a challenging grace, in order that we might seek and find him again. The apostle Peter says this in some of his other sermons and acts. 
He is not so far from you. He's left an account so that you would seek for him, so that you would want to come back to your source, back to unity, back to peace, back to mutual understanding, back to community. This is what he is doing in the world. And Pentecost, this first public fruit of Jesus' life in the world, has the beautiful sound of salvation. The many sounds of salvation. I'll read just a bit of it again to you. In the midst of all this noise and chaos and clamoring and looking for this Messiah or that Caesar or this president or that party or this law and all of the cacophony and all of the anger, in the midst of that, this community came together and through no power of their own, they were gathered in one place waiting a promise from this Jesus who had died, had been raised from the dead and had ascended into heaven They were waiting for him to do a new thing, and he did a new thing, and it brought the sounds of salvation into the world. Hear this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Do I need to unpack that, or do you hear that? They were all together. They came together. They gathered together in one place, the same place. They shared it. And in that context, suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. When God created the world, it says that the winds were over the, over the waters, that they were bringing things together, order out of chaos. And then God breathed his breath into Adam and Eve and made in humanity, brought life into them, his own life. The sound of wind rushes into the room where they are gathered together in one place, and it fills the entire house where they're sitting. And then these little pictures of tongues of fire are resting on each one of them. And I could unpack this later. I'll just say now, the word tongues uh, in Greek is, is the way we would talk about a mother tongue. So it's just the word for languages. Uh, but it also is the word for the member that is the tongue. And so when you hear this, it could be languages, it could be tongues, but there's these tongues of fire, these languages of fire over each one of them. It's resting on each one of them, and everyone's filled, each person, all together. We heard the prophecy. It wouldn't just be limited to a few of the prophets or just to the temple or just to the priests and their system. Everyone, individually and together, filled with God's Holy Spirit. And because of this power, they began to speak in other languages, other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. When they heard the sound of this, what? Everyone started coming together, people outside of the church community. And they're all bewildered. It's like confused, but also in awe. Because each one was hearing this group of people speak in a language they could understand for the first time. Their mother tongue. And they were amazed and astonished. They said, how is this happening? This is a miracle. In their own in our own languages, our own tongues, in ways we find intelligible, they're declaring the mighty works of God. And so you see this gathering of people coming together. There's a new understanding, a new exchange of ideas, but also of power. Don't forget, this miracle is happening, enables people who have no innate power to convince or persuade or even communicate intelligibly to one another are suddenly able to find a new connection, and they're not even sure what the connection is or where the power comes from. It's bewildering. It doesn't make sense. But even though I used to see you as someone voted this way, or I used to be, see you as someone who was either too old or too young, I used to see you as someone who acted funny because you were either too rich or too poor for me, or you know what? I've always 
distrusted deep down people with the color of your skin. These people came together and they say, what is happening? There is some new connection. There's a hint here. There's a clue. What could this mean? It feels something like a mighty work of God. I'm starting to understand. Something's happening in a new language that makes sense to me. What is this? And so I need you to hear again that there is power for change in the world. This distraction, the division, is not the final word for you. It's not the final word for our congregation. It's not the final word for our culture in America, if you happen to live here for the next 10, 50 years. It doesn't have, nothing's a foregone conclusion. Right here in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit came from Jesus, from heaven, into his people, the church. And the same Spirit, at the beginning of Acts, it says, I'm going to write this account of the book of Acts, which is an account of the church, the Acts of the church in the early days. The same author that wrote that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke writes in the beginning of Acts chapter 1, I'm going to tell you this book, the book about the church. And what this book is, is what Jesus continued to do. The Jesus that you can't see right now because he ascended into heaven and he's at God's right hand, invisibly, has sent his spirit and he continues to do things in and through his people, the church. This is the most foolish thing I can say to you right now. I think if I say Jesus rose from the dead, some of you might be like, that sounds foolish. A lot of you are like, I've heard it so many times, it doesn't sound foolish. But for me to say to you, after what we've lived through and watched in the news, the American church, or experienced through some of the American church, for me to tell you that the hope of the world is still the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ working through local congregations, that sounds like foolishness. Maybe you think, he must have been drinking out the communion wine this morning. And I tell you, it's not the third hour yet. <laughs> See me at the sixth hour. Maybe we'll have a drink after church. No. It sounds like crazy talk to some. It sounds like crazy talk to me, but see, my job is not to come up and persuade you of something I think is logistically or statistically probable. My job is to preach good news to you. <laughs> this is the gift of God. We can't earn it, and we can't demerit it. It's just what he's doing. Will you be a part of it? Will you follow the sound of salvation, which is the sound of gathering together in one place. It is the sound of hearing people that are diverse and different and sometimes despised by you and beginning to see the Holy Spirit resting upon them and speaking back to you into your lives and filling you up and strengthening you and bewildering you and loving you. This is the sound of salvation. Jesus himself said, you know God the Father, and you know the Spirit when he comes because he's going to dwell in you and will be in you. That was in his final prayer. The job of the Holy Spirit is to come and to make Jesus present to us again in our individual lives and especially in our communities. <coughs> the book of Revelation, let me grab a drink of water just for the last minute here. The book of Revelation says of the church, and this isn't off in the future, it's of the church in this era. It says, they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, by, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every single tribe, 
every single language, every people and nation. You gathered them and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on this earth. This is the song we are to be singing. So it says the church will sing a new song, a sound that people will hear out there. This is our vision of our church, to be a Pentecostal church, a church filled with the Spirit, to believe that the best argument for Jesus is what Jesus prayed it would be, and that is that a congregation that believes it and lives it out, a congregation that transcends the divisions of the world by the grace of God, is one that becomes intelligible to its community. It's one where people are bewildered and see a power that they can't find in their own political parties or their own institutions or their own just trying hard. And so if you are here, if you're investigating Christianity this morning, or perhaps you've been away for a long time and you find these claims about the church ludicrous and you've seen the power that happened or the, what happens when people give in to power in the church, and we're all very aware. I could, I could sit down with you and, and match your list. I could probably add to it. And yet, in the midst of this, can you still look for that power and that sound? It will sound like the sound of love and embrace and welcome and connection. Can you see it and hear it today in this place or in another congregation just like ours nearby or elsewhere? And if you do belong to this church or you're considering being more and more a part of this community, I just want to encourage you. This is all the grace of God. He is literally gathering us together in one new place. What does he have in store for us this year? We have a lot to learn about one another. We have a lot to figure out, a lot to grow into. Can we believe that it is as we begin to love one another and get to know one another and become intelligible to one another and live out love for one another and for our neighbors that God's presence will be revealed to us, to one another, and to the world? What will we see as he gathers us and pours Christ out to, into us afresh? What new powers will you see at work in someone doing something extraordinary, even if it's small, an ordinary thing done with extraordinary love, as one writer puts it. As you begin to witness, there's so much more to that person than I thought, you know? And what sounds will our neighbors hear as they're walking by besides the saxophone, which is lovely? Will they hear the sound of a congregation with these doors open as they're walking by? Will they hear the sounds of people laughing in the garden? Will they hear the sounds of people humbling themselves to serve them on the sidewalks and in their apartments? I believe they will. Friends, the good news is that you belong to God. You were made for him. And no matter how much we run away or divide from one another, he is bringing us back together. And so, by the power of his spirit, his body is always a safe place to come. To hear your tongue loosed, the joy of other people's tongues and languages loosed, and to find a new connection where before you saw nothing in common. This is what God is doing in the world and is more powerful than our technology. It's more powerful than our resistance and it is good for us. It's good for the world. I pray that you would experience this Holy Spirit today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.